Sunday, October 5th, 2014, Terre Haute, Indiana emergency dispatchers began receiving a series of frantic calls. Kelly Ann Arnie Acker had in total made four attempts to alert authorities to the immediate danger she found herself in. By the time police arrived at her home, it was too late. While pleading on her cell phone for emergency dispatchers to send help, Kelly was shot six times in front of her 10-year-old son by Dr. George Scott Sampson, who then later turned the gun on himself. A man who only hours prior had vowed to love and cherish her. Dr. Scott Sampson an anesthesiologist and Kelly a nurse had met at the local Terre Haute Hospital only a year and a half earlier. What could have possibly transpired in those very early morning hours following their beautiful wedding ceremony? What drove Dr. Scott Sampson, a man who had sworn an oath and was entrusted to treat and save patients' lives, to suddenly snap and brutally take the life of his own wife, and then himself? Please join me as the Minds of Madness reveals new information behind the deaths of the newlywed couple. Through unprecedented interviews, we will bring to light some very disturbing new information and a possible motive behind the very tragic and senseless murder-suicide. Venture with me now into the mind of Dr. George Scott Sampson and the madness that lay within it. Before Scott Sampson's relationship with Kelly, he was previously married to another woman, who also happened to be a nurse working at the same hospital. Together they had three daughters, and it was reported that the couple had been having some marital problems. However, they agreed to remain together until the girls were older and out of the house. That time had finally come, and Dr. Sampson and his wife began drawing up their separation agreement, soon parting ways. Amidst the divorce, he met Kelly. Kelly was a beautiful woman that looked years younger than her actual age. Although she was soon approaching her 51st birthday, she was in exceptional shape. She had a radiant smile and a warm personality that brought comfort to the countless patients she cared for at Union Hospital. She'd been a registered nurse there for several years, working in the intensive care unit. On an online memorial page dedicated to Kelly after her death, one person wrote, My son passed away a month ago, and he spent a week in the ICU, and Kelly was his nurse. She was the most compassionate, supportive nurse I had ever had the pleasure to meet. She was good to my son and my family. She'll be missed so much. She was our angel. A co-worker wrote, I loved Kelly. My heart is breaking. I was part of her ICU family. She would do anything for her co-workers, who she would also call her friends. But the same sentiment wasn't remembered about Dr. George Scott Sampson. In a telephone interview with us, Patricia Liturgy, Kelly's mother, recalls meeting Dr. George Scott Sampson 
and describes her overall impressions of him. The only time we've ever had any contact with him is when we went out to eat with them. And uh, when we went out to eat with them, he didn't talk to the group. He would just lean over and whisper something to Kelly. So he never said anything. And I told Kelly, I said, Kelly, he's a strange man. She says, yeah, but there's a good side of him. I mean, I never saw the good side of him. We also spoke to a close friend of Kelly's who asked to remain anonymous. We'll refer to her as Jane. Jane also wasn't particularly fond of Scott Sampson. In fact, she disliked him. Couldn't stand him. And he knew it. And he hated me. Couldn't stand each other. Initially, I just really didn't think anything of him in particular. You know, I met him about two weeks after they started dating. Didn't really have a great opinion of him. I was like, okay, what the heck does she see in this guy, you know? Here she is, and here he is. Why? I, I don't get it. Jane remembers one time she went out to dinner with the couple. We met for dinner. It was Kelly, myself, my two boys, her son, and Scott. And he barely spoke. He seemed particularly annoyed that it, anybody was there except for Kelly. Although Jane didn't work directly with Scott Sampson at the hospital, she got the feeling from the other colleagues that he wasn't well-liked. Well, I never worked with him, thank God. But, so this is completely hearsay, and I can't give you any specific examples. I just got the feeling that he was just a real jerk. In general, to everybody. And that he felt like he was superior. Kelly and Scott met at Union Hospital, where they both worked. Kelly's friend Jane also worked at the same hospital and recalls when the couple first met. She was introduced to him by another physician. I don't know if it was in that same moment. I think it actually might have been that he asked her out. And... She accepted, and she told me on the phone that night, I don't know why I accepted. Because she kind of had this personal rule, I guess, that she didn't date doctors. That was kind of a thing. And I think part of it, you got to understand, Kelly, as strikingly beautiful as she was, had very low self-esteem. She didn't really get asked out a lot, not because men were not interested in her, but more likely because they were too intimidated to ask her out, probably figuring they didn't have a shot with her. So when Scott asked her, she accepted and she actually verbalized that it was mostly because he asked. In the short year and a half after Kelly and Scott first met, it appeared that the couple was broken up more times than they were actually together. They'd break up and date other people only to go back together again. When Jane was asked how often the two would break up, she replied, Hundreds of times. 
for a variety of reasons. However, many times it was the same reason over and over and over again. And mostly it was because he was being controlling or he was being a jerk or he was stalking her or because she wasn't doing what he wanted her to do and then he didn't like it, so he threw a little fit. It was just like a broken record. During the countless times the couple broke up, Scott refused to leave Kelly alone. At work, it was reported that he would also corner her in stairwells in order to force her to interact with him, or he would show up in the ICU and just sit and watch her while she was working. She could not escape him. You know what I mean? So work was not a sanctuary for her. Her home was not a sanctuary for her because he would watch for her to go home There's not really a route that she could have taken to her home that he couldn't kind of watch for her to pass by. For the most part, he knew if she was home or not. It was obvious because he would go and he would, like, knock on her bedroom window. And it didn't matter if it was 2 a.m. or what time. It didn't matter if she had to be at work first thing in the morning. He would not leave her alone. Pat, Kelly's mother, recalls one startling evening that Scott showed up unannounced at her daughter's home. Samson would come and start pounding on her door about 11, 11.30 at night. And when she wouldn't answer that, he would come home, come around and was knocking on her bedroom window. And she would call me and I says, Kelly, call 911. And she says, I can't. I feel sorry for him. And I told her, I says, Kelly, you can't love somebody and feel sorry for them. You can't. Dr. Scott Sampson would also harass Kelly in other various ways and was relentless. I think she really was held hostage. It may not have been in a restraint kind of way, but in the way that, you know, he wouldn't leave her alone. And it wasn't in a way that anybody was going to save her. He was everywhere. We would be talking on the phone and and she would be reading me these mile-long text messages that he would just be barraging her with while we were on the phone, nonstop. There were a couple of times where he'd say, whose truck is that in your driveway? And he was never not there in some fashion. Although she never had peace with him, it was simpler for her to be with him than to try to not be with him. When the couple did get back together, Dr. Sampson would continue to wield his authority over her and didn't seem bothered to take opportunities to belittle and humiliate Kelly at her place of work. Pat recalls various encounters her daughter had with him at the hospital. He would go to ICU and he would tell one of the nurses, go tell Kelly to get out here when she was with a patient. And, and Kelly would tell him, tell him I'm with a patient. And he would get furious. I mean, just, she wasn't doing what he told her to do. She told me that, well, where he kept telling her she wasn't a good nurse, she wasn't a good mom, and he was going to get her fired. And her supervisor told her, he can't get you fired. He's an anesthesiologist. He's got nothing to do with your job. Jane remembers one very upsetting moment in particular that Kelly experienced at the hands of Scott. 
Well, no, I'll just tell you an incident that happened that just kind of gives you an idea of how this man treated her. And it just is sick. So this was her Christmas party for ICU. Her coworkers and essentially his two. Um, now, this is something that Kelly had been looking so, 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 so forward to. It was a formal event. She looked absolutely gorgeous. So they go to this event, and like I said, she was just beside herself with excitement looking forward to this. And this was their first time going to an event with her coworkers together. Anyway, through the course of the night, he gets drunk. They're dancing, and he gropes her on the dance floor up her skirt and is saying disgusting things about her in front of her co-workers to the point that she left within a couple of hours and came home. And I know that because I was there watching her son. And she was absolutely brokenhearted. That's one of the times that they broke up for pretty, pretty good amount of time. They broke up that time. It appeared that Scott Sampson had been making a solid attempt to break the very vibrant, strong-willed Kelly Ann Arniacker through various forms of intimidation, harassment, emotional abuse, and fear. And he was succeeding. Kelly's Facebook posts were also a looking glass into the couple's complicated and unhealthy relationship. On June 18th, 2014, Kelly posted a quote that said, Don't give up too much of yourself just to have someone in your life. When you meet the right one, you'll know it. You can't stretch a tent into a mansion, no matter how hard you try. On June 24th, she posted the statement, You can't keep hurting a person and expecting them to love you. Three days after that, on June 27th, Another quote emerged stating, Sometimes people try to expose what's wrong with you because they can't handle everything that's right about you. Lastly, on July 2nd, about three months before her wedding and death, she posted, One of the most sincere forms of respect is actually listening to what another has to say. Those closest to Kelly could see her self-esteem deteriorating and the damaging effect Scott was having on Kelly's mental and emotional health. But there didn't seem to be anything anyone could do to stop it. It was heart-wrenching for Kelly's loved ones to watch. I know for sure her self-esteem was bad. And I saw it deteriorate more and more and more and more the longer she was in this relationship with Scott. I had actually decided to just quit talking to her because it was just too hard. This drama, this, you know, I'm with him, I'm not with him, I'm with him, I'm not with him. This roller coaster Scott stuff was just, it was wearing me out. I just loved her so much and it was ripping me apart going through it with her. So I had decided that I was going to quit talking to her. 
But by the time she called, I had already decided in my head that I couldn't do that, that I couldn't give up on her because she needed somebody. And I had been in an abusive relationship myself. And although I didn't feel or believe or know that Scott was physically abusive, I knew that he was emotionally abusive. And I did not want her going through that alone. And I knew she needed somebody. Everybody needs somebody. And I knew that I was her somebody. Scott and Kelly's relationship was tumultuous and dysfunctional, to say the least. So it's understandable why Kelly's engagement was so baffling to her best friend. What the heck are you thinking? He's a jerk. In fact, I kind of got under her a bit because we had made a promise to each other that we wouldn't ever marry anybody that the other one didn't approve of. I mean, in a loving way, I said, hey, you promised. She just kind of sheepishly smiled and said, yeah, I know. Rumors circulated that the only reason why they got engaged was because Kelly was a gold digger and was only after Scott's money. And that rumor couldn't have been any further from the truth. News articles stating that the couple fought over a prenuptial agreement and that Kelly refused to sign it. But Kelly's mother and friend had a different take on that. Let me just state for the record that Kelly was not a gold digger. She paid her own bills when they moved in together. She was supposed to pay the electric bill in that house. I mean, obviously, she couldn't afford the mortgage. I mean, she made a tenth of what he made, obviously. When they went out to eat, no matter where it was, how expensive it was, there were times where when the bill came, he'd go to the restroom and she'd have to pay the bill. He he stuck her with a lot of stuff. Um, and he was not going to take over her bills. He was not going to cover anything to do with her son at all, period. Wasn't going to pick up her car payment. Wasn't going to pick up anything. She initiated the prenup because, well, for one thing, she really never intended on being married to him, for one. Secondly, she wanted it to be clear that she was not marrying him for his money. Just weeks before their wedding day, Kelly made a solid attempt to end the relationship once again and tried to move out. One time she had um, a moving van at the Creole address and they had it about half loaded with Kelly's stuff. She was moving out and somehow he was supposed to work all day that day. He came home and he told those moving people, take that stuff back in the house and get out of here. And so there went that chance. Kelly's mother could not understand how the strong-willed daughter she knew and loved could not only continue to remain in a relationship with a man that made her feel so horrible, but then agreed to marry him. Kelly was a really strong-willed girl. I mean, she didn't let anybody push her around. And uh, I don't know how he got into her head the way that he did. kept telling her she wasn't a good nurse, she wasn't a good mother. Somehow he got into her brain and just made her feel like nothing. He didn't want her around any of her friends. He didn't want her around us. He, he was just a horrible, horrible man. His control over Kelly permeated into every aspect of her life, 
breakdown to how and when he was intimate with her. He treated Kelly like an object, an object that was his to use and treat however he pleased. What's particularly interesting is that Dr. Sampson had stated at one point that he never intended on ever getting married again. His divorce had caused a huge financial drain on his bank account, and he most certainly didn't intend on going through that a second time. So why did he propose? Jane stated, This was all him. I mean, he didn't want to ever get married again, first of all, but he wanted Kelly to move in with him. And she refused to move in with him unless they were engaged. And so I think that's why he proposed to her. So Scott didn't want to get married again, but he wanted Kelly to move in with him. And Kelly had this stipulation. Because of her son, she wouldn't live with a man unless they were married. So the two were at a stalemate. Could that have been Kelly's intention? Had Kelly insisted on her stipulation, knowing it would ensure Scott would never propose to her, which would also mean she would never have to live with him. And then, did he call her bluff? Why else would Kelly have agreed to marry Scott? She was being bullied, harassed, belittled, and intimidated. The relationship was on again, off again, and very explosive. Kelly tried moving out before their wedding day, and was even reported telling her wedding planner that she didn't want to marry Scott. By all accounts, it seemed pretty clear that this woman didn't want to marry this man. So why did she? When we asked Jane about her thoughts on this, she said, I got the impression that it was because she felt like he would be angry if she didn't, or it was to avoid humiliation for him. She didn't specifically say why, but it was to avoid upsetting him. Again, I never really got the impression that it was because she felt physically in danger. I just thought it was because he was going to get mad. No one thought Scott was capable of harming Kelly, not even Kelly's mother, who never had a good feeling about him. I had no inkling that something violent would happen. I didn't even worry that he would hit her because he was a doctor. I thought if he was a doctor, he would at least be civilized to her. And as far as I know, he never hit her, never, ever. He didn't do anything violent until that night. And one psychiatrist out of New York has said he just snapped. To this day, and the police tell me, we'll never know what really happened to set him off. So you've now heard some of the intimate details surrounding Dr. George Scott Sampson and Kelly Ann Arnie Acker's relationship, most of which was not known by very many people, except for those closest to Kelly and perhaps Scott. In our next episode, you'll hear about Kelly's childhood and the series of events that led her down a very fateful path. You'll also hear the chilling 911 emergency calls Kelly made only minutes before she died, along with first-hand accounts of what transpired that very tragic and horrific night. I would like to thank Kelly's mother, Pat, for being so courageous in telling her daughter's story for taking the time to speak with us and for sharing some of the potential warning signs of a deadly relationship. I would also like to thank Kelly's friend, who also demonstrated bravery in providing us details around this very heartbreaking event, for being so transparent with us, giving us some insight into how this could have happened. 
I would like to thank all the wonderful listeners that have taken the time to review the Minds of Madness and have participated in our April Swag Contest. I would also like to take a moment to tell you about a couple podcasts that I've been listening to lately and really enjoying. The Strange and Unusual. Hi, this is Allison Horrocks, host of The Strange and Unusual podcast. If you enjoy dark history, legends, folklore, murder mysteries, superstition, ghost stories, and more, then this is the podcast for you. On The Strange and Unusual podcast, we explore the fear of the unknown throughout history and how today we still feel the shadowy presence of our ancestors' struggles to explain the unknown. Through current-day pulp culture, urban legends, rituals, and even murder, we are still just fighting to keep our monsters in the dark. You can find The Strange and Unusual podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Visit thestrangeandunusualpodcast.com for links to the show. Along with The Magic Lantern Podcast. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. And together we host the Magic Lantern Podcast. An ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. As a Minds of Madness listener, you might like to start with our episodes on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Psycho, both loosely based on the story of Ed Gein. Join us every other Monday as we explore our cinematic memories, both classic and contemporary. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. For the last month, We've received some pretty amazing reviews from all around the world on iTunes, and I can't thank our listeners enough for taking the time to give us your thoughts on the show. As much as I enjoy putting each show together, it means so much to me to also hear what you, the listener, are thinking. There are too many reviews to mention, but I randomly chose a few. From the U.S., TommyBoy04 said, I really enjoy listening to this podcast. It shows that even the most normal of people are capable of going mad. Thanks for taking the time to create this podcast. Paul Cosma wrote, Great storytelling, guaranteed to give you the heebie-jeebies and make you look twice at the people you think you know. Desru said, I knew the show was going to be great, when in the first episode the host started naming off all the other podcasts that I like to listen to. This show is well-written, well-produced, has awesome music. Can't say any more how good the show is. Check it out if you love true crime. You'll love the show, and I hope to hear more episodes in the future. From Canada, Starling1980 wrote, Well-researched, well-presented, and some cases I had not yet heard of, and some Canadian content, definitely on my regular rotation now. And lastly, from the UK, Wendy Wu says, Fabulous narrator with a great voice for this type of podcast. I've been listening to most of these types of podcasts, and this one is one of the best. Well done. Keep up the good work. A tremendous thank you also to everyone on our Facebook page that has taken the time to leave comments and reviews. I've read them all and truly value your feedback. Thank you to Marina Frieden, who recently left a five-star review on our page. She wrote, Wow, top pitch quality sound engineering, great storytelling, perfect ambient and background music. I'd say... Love it, love it, love it. I just wish episodes would be longer. Great job. Thank you, Marina. We, too, would love to make longer episodes. But as I'm sure you've heard from other podcasters, an enormous amount of time is involved with putting each and every episode together. From research, to script writing, to recording, to editing, 
it could easily be a full-time job. And trust me, when I say a lot of sacrifices are made in order to bring each episode to you. Which brings me to my next announcement, which is to let our listeners know that we've set up a Patreon account in hopes to ensuring this podcast is brought to you on a regular basis. For those of you that would like to support us in bringing these well-researched, written, and produced podcast episodes to you, please go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. It's what we love to do, but in order for it to be sustainable, we need your help. Please consider in giving a monthly donation, no matter how small. Every little bit helps, and we greatly appreciate it. I would like to thank Lainey from the True Crime Fan Club podcast that voiced the disclaimer at the start of our episode. Please check out her podcast if you haven't already. The Minds of Madness podcast is also available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook under The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the title track to The Minds of Madness was written and created by Duncan Foster. <laughs>